Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. And welcome back to the second in our Summer of Scorsese. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Yeah. What do you want? Darren, what the fuck do you want? What kind of question is that, Darren? Thank you. Andrew investing wholeheartedly in our summer of Scorsese. Um, and no, also, no, uh, what, uh, that's just that's, that's just how I'm feeling. Um, no, I'm very well, thanks, uh, Darren. I'm just fresh from watching this, so I might be like slightly infected with the the um, yeah. I'm really angry, Darren. <laughs> I don't know why or how or what about. Yeah, I'm just angry this, in this second second week of. The um, score, Sazy. The summer yeah, of score, Sazy. It's the ten U.S. connection to this theme, or should I say yes. the twenty us connection to this theme? Um, is this good? This is great. This is all gold. And Brilliant. joining us. Uh, for the second week, uh, part of the season, our co-host for these eight episodes, looking at the films of Martin Scorsese, Jay Coyle. How are you, Jay? Fantastic. There's eight. My God, what have I got myself into? <laughs> yeah, it's too late. You've signed the contract now. Now All you right. know how I feel, Jay. Sorry. <laughs> now imagine instead of eight, it's it terrible. Yeah, it never ends. <laughs> but also I, I imagine was... it was your idea. Yeah, exactly. I I I did say to Darren the other day that. This podcast is like if Fitzcarraldo, instead of being a movie, uh, you know, like piece of narrative uh, film, was instead a behind the scenes of of how they couldn't get the movie made, um, and 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 then and then it would be a bit like the two fifty podcast. It would just be them trying to push a boat up a hill and failing to, and. Um, yeah, Darren is the conquistador of uh, pointlessness, um, and this is a lot, but it's a lot of fun, and we get to speak to our friends. Um, so, so welcome, Jay. Welcome, Grace. And that's it. We have a set. We get another guest here today. Uh, the wonderful Grace Duffy. How are you, Grace? Ah, good, good. Actually, kind of great to have you on because when we decided we were doing this, I think you were one of the first people that we wanted to have on, Grace. And I think the reason for that was because. I know from talking to you in the past, being on podcasts with you in the past, you've an interesting relationship, I think, with the films of Martin Scorsese. Would that be fair to say? <laughs> if by interesting you mean I haven't seen most of them, then yes. <laughs> we had this, um, uh, what did it, <laughs> I can't remember if it started last year or the year before, but there was supposed to be a, a nice kind of season where I watched a bunch of them and kind of got caught up, which, you know, I'm taking forever to do. I think I have about eight of them down now. But this was one of the first ones I watched, if I recall correctly, because Jay was kind of marking out them and or marking them out in groups of three. Um, but yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a newbie. You can put Jay it that gives way. you homework? Occasionally, yes. I, I don't feel so bad for Jay, Jay anymore. Um, it, like, I don't know, is, is he the Why me? Why would you feel bad for of, me? You of, feel great. How dare you? Because you have to do eight podcasts. I was thinking, oh, oh yeah. Jay, Jay has to do eight uh, Scorsese podcasts. He's a bit like me. And it's like, no, Jay gives homework to people. He's a bit like Darren. Um, Wait, hold on. I never gave homework to people. <laughs> That's not fair. Anyway, what I was going to say. never asked me to watch a movie. <laughs> 
It's not really this homework is... so much as the entire point of the podcast that you suggested. But did, anyway. Did you fuck my life, Darren? <laughs> I'm not going to dignify that with an answer. Did you I'm not going to answer that. I'm not going to answer that, Andrew. But anyway, back to Grace. Quick question there on that. So you've watched eight Scorsese films so far. What are your, you know, preliminary impressions? What's your kind of strong takeaway from the set that you've watched so far? What is your favorite of the bunch? What's your least favorite of the bunch? Is there a reason that you were kind of, you know, that you were, you waited until Jay asked you or until the idea of Grace meets Marty to kind of approach Scorsese? Was he somebody you consciously avoided? Kind of what was, what was the impetus behind the project? Um, I don't know. I just, I suppose like I was familiar with his films because everyone is, but none of them seemed especially interesting to me. So the ones that I've, like the ones that I had seen, which I'm trying to remember now was The Departed and something else, Mean Streets, I think. And there might've been another one in there that I've forgotten about. Um, I like The Departed. I wasn't mad on Mean Streets, but, oh, and I'd seen Goodfellas, which I also wasn't crazy about. So I just wasn't really in a particular rush to seek out his other work. Of the ones that I've seen though, which is um, those three I just mentioned. And then also After Hours, The Aviator, Raging Bull, Casino, The King of Comedy, The Irishman, and The Last Temptation of Christ. Raging Bull is the one that I've liked most actually, which is kind of random because I wasn't huge in The Irishman or Casino. The Aviator was grand. After Hours, I liked. Casino, I didn't like. Last Temptation of Christ was a weird movie. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. This this actually got, like, an actual glowing report. So, it was a good, fortuitous one for me to talk about. <laughs> well, the most glowing report so far. There's a bit that Adam McKay did, um, kind of on focus groups for The Last Temptation of Christ. Um <laughs> About, about be, be, because of course he makes movies and he talks about like the ridiculousness of, of when you set up like a focus group to, to bring in people and say kind of like, um, did you like the, the crucifixion? Um, uh, did you want more of, of, of this? Like, like, um, anyway, sorry. The, the, um, yeah, and, and are we going to be watching The Last Temptation of Christ, Darren? We are not going to be watching The Last Temptation of Christ. Martin's We're not going to be watching Silence. Are a lost decade. Silence is also um, a film that's absent we, from this. Are we watching Kundun? No, we are not watching Please. Kundun. Uh, surprising. Please. Not, to stereotype, not to stereotype the voters on the IMDb 250, but they tend to skew largely towards the accepted Martin Scorsese uh, macho canon, and the movies that Martin Scorsese has released since about 2006. That tends to be the two categories. And appropriately enough, that's the kind of two um, kind of competing groups that we're kind of breaking them down into. We're doing four collaborations early on with Robert De Niro. And then we're doing the kind of the post-2006, post-Departed set um, later on as well. Uh, but very, very quickly, actually. Um, and Kunda. We might, if you want to, if you want to do Condon, we can do Condon. If you want to add another movie to this list, we can add another movie to this list. You're, you're watching it now, Andrew. That's it. No, my ideas tend to be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost impossible to watch. Um, so, uh, so that might be a difficulty. Um, and he doesn't mean it's really boring. No, no, no. It's just difficult. Like, it's one of, Condon, I believe, is one of those movies where presumably there is somebody who made this movie like martin scorsese for example presumably he gets paid every time somebody pays for that movie but have decided that they don't want any money and they don't want it to be available anywhere jay 
when we when we asked you to do this project, obviously you are a huge Martin Scorsese fan. He's one of your favorite filmmakers ever. I happen to do a bunch of you know background research on our guests, which is part oh, of the, the rudimentary kind of two fifty process. And what I meant to do was I meant to, oh don't worry Andrew I've got a big dossier on you here. But uh, I happen to notice that you have twice described Raging Bull as the greatest film ever made. I have. In 2012 and in 2014. That that was young me. I, I'd like to disassociate myself from uh, young me to some degree, I will say. And so I think it's a great film. Oh. But it's the best film of all time, I do not know. I would suggest not. Okay, well, just because, you know, you're kind of... You're, you have a longer relationship with Martin Scorsese than anybody else here. And in terms of Raging Bull and th having that immediate visceral reaction to it, you know, even, you know, back in 2012, 2014, I presume before that as well. What was it about Raging Bull that, when did you first see it? How did oh, it grab God. you? Um, and kind of, what was it immediately coming out of it going, you know, it's the best film ever? I, I would have seen it when I was younger because I had older brothers and we watched a lot of films that perhaps we shouldn't have been watching at certain ages in that way. So, and my one of my brothers was a big Scorsese fan, so I got to see a lot of them at a younger age. And I suppose in that regard, they're quite formative. And particularly Rage Bull, I I kind of I kind of clung to for the technical aspects. I think when I was younger, more than anything else, the black and white, the fighting, the the kind of the the expressionist the style, the, yeah, the handheld, yeah, yeah, which I I really loved that. I'd still do, but I think it's a different. I I view it very differently now than I would have viewed it even five ten years ago as a film i think it's still a great film but i think it, there's it's much more layered than that that i would have seen of it a long time ago a lot's happened since 2014 you don't have to tell me just a quick bit of background uh, before we jump into talking about raging bull we talked last week about taxi driver which is a major critical and commercial success a hugely influential film regarded as one of the most important films of the 70s almost immediately on release in fact actually at the oscar ceremony uh, where scorsese will be nominated for uh, best Picture for his work on Raging Bull. Uh, that was actually shortly following the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan, uh, which had been prompted in part by Taxi Driver. In the years that followed Taxi Driver, Scorsese didn't so much define the kind of director that he was going to be as figure out the kind of director that he wasn't going to be. The arc of kind of Scorsese's career around this time is very similar to what you see with a lot of the, the new Hollywood World tours. Earlier in the year, we talked with the wonderful Tony Black in the New Wave podcast about um, William Friedkin's Sorcerer following on from the success of The Exorcist, this giant hubristic kind of piece of work that demanded to be brought down to earth. And Scorsese did something similar. He leveraged the success of Taxi Driver to get to make New York, New York, which is very much kind of a collision between an old style MGM musical and a kind of a more new Hollywood 70s kind of film in that it's shot on standing sets and studio backlogs. All the exteriors are kind of shot using these giant sound stages and kind of hyper real environments to pick an example. But it's a very 70s film in the way that it deals with things like, say, abortion, for example, in the way in which its characters behave, in which it explores the tension that exists between two very, very unlikable protagonists. It was a kind of a, and a vaguely experimental kind of film. It didn't really work at all incredibly expensive and a huge box office disaster like sorcerer it had the misfortune to open in the gravity well around george lucas's star wars it garnered horrible critical reviews although it has had some minor reappraisal in the years since and earned only a pittance back on its kind of massive momentous budget it was seen as being kind of a case of hubris for scorsese striking him down for his arrogance now in scorsese's telling of the events that was the point at which he realized that he was never going to be a director comparable to say steven spielberg 
or even at the time Francis Ford Coppola or George Lucas. He was never going to have that same level of commercial and kind of public appeal that those directors had. And he was very anxious about that. He's very worried about being seen as a director who appealed primarily to critics or to intellectuals. And so kind of he's talked about how that failure kind of freed him up and allowed him to become a bit more esoteric, to embrace kind of the stranger and kind of weirder side, the more aggressive and esoteric films that he was going to make. Scorsese was also going through some personal difficulties at the time as well. He talked about how when his daughter was born during the production of New York, New York, he already knew that he was unlikely to be a part of her life for a long period of time. He was unlikely to be living in the same household as her. He was having an affair with Liza Minnelli during the production. How many people had an affair with Liza Minnelli? Like, is there um, like a special Wikipedia page for that? I realize Liza Minnelli is still alive and probably has a book about this. But like... Like the the Darren, you're you're the kind of person who would know. Is this because um, you've both studied law and are an expert in uh, in film? So like is is um, like first of all, um, how how many affairs is Liza Minnelli being a part of? And secondly, is this um, is this slander? <laughs> Is, is okay. this terrible? And is this is all to put out, Andrew. Don't worry about it. Talk yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> So yes, it was a very, very difficult production for Scorsese, who had at the same time developed a massive cocaine addiction. Um, he would film on... He'd also taken... He was addicted to massive cocaine? Yes. Only only the largest of cocaine. Which is quite ironic, given that he's actually a physically a very small man. It's very concentrated doses of cocaine, it turns out. Uh, but no, Scorsese basically tried to get New York, New York made, kind of pushed it through the system. It ended up an absolute mess. It was a catastrophe. By Scorsese's own account, it was one of the most difficult films that he's ever made. He still has difficulty looking back on it objectively. Uh, one of the big problems with it was the weird combination of kind of studio aesthetic and kind of improvised dialogue made it impossible to edit. It was arguably the first of Scorsese's truly epic films and that it runs two hours and 41 minutes for a film that you know really should probably clock in about two hours um while that was happening Scorsese was also approached to film and to document the last ba- performance of the band uh, which would become the documentary The Last Waltz sorry Scorsese- did, can I ask you a question there Darren I appear to have been bleeped um so, um, can you tell me, when, when Scorsese early in his career made a movie that was too long, did he learn his lesson and, and never make a long movie again? Like, he, he, it, it kind of scared him a little bit. The next time that he would try would be about 10 years later on The Passion of the Christ. Steady. Right. And <laughs> you mean The Last Temptation of Christ? Last Temptation of Christ, yes. One of the, them is the a last passion of the Christ. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair point. Uh, but but yes. is this is this movie that is, is this movie that we just watched not not made after? Um, uh, yes, it is, and it is significantly yeah. shorter than two hours and forty minutes. Is it significantly short? It's significantly shorter. <laughs> only by about okay. forty minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but I think when most filmmakers, you could say only by about 40 minutes. I think 40 minutes is a reasonable like, measure of time to say. Like 30 minutes. It's pretty long. Like like 10, 10 minutes. 10 minutes is long. You know, 10 minutes is late. Um, but uh, two hours, 10 minutes, that's, uh, that's a long movie. What do you think? What do you think, Jay? I would agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, like how many Vardas is that? 
That's like one it's point. Two, nearly. It's, it's yeah, it's nearly varied. two Vardas. Yeah. So, All right. Yeah. This was causing all manner of personal and professional problems for him as well. And again, Peter Biskin goes into this a great deal in, for example, Easy Riders Raging Bulls. But it's also handled in, say, Scorsese on Scorsese. And the interviews that he did with Richard Sheckle around the time. So it's not so much talking out of school. It's not so much gossip or tabloid material. And Scorsese's talked about how he hit basically rock bottom at this point. He was working on New York, New York, not finding creative fulfillment. He'd been asked to film and edit a documentary covering the last live performance of the band, what would become the documentary, the musical documentary and concert film, The Last Waltz, which arguably codified uh, the idea of the concert film into the late 20th and 21st century. Scorsese would work on edit on New York, New York during the day and then go and edit The Last Waltz at night, apparently powered by cocaine, living on a diet of junk food and nonsense, ringing up his editors and his production staff in the middle of the night because assuming that they were just as wired as he was. It was not a productive way for the director to work. It all came to a head uh, on Labor Day weekend when Scorsese decided that he was going to attend the Telerude Film Festival. Now, the Telerude Film Festival is at a high altitude, uh, so there's less oxygen in the air. Scorsese, a notorious asthmatic, um, had an asthma attack while in Telerud. He was also unable to score good cocaine, high-quality street cocaine, apparently having to procure substandard cocaine from local dealers uh, at the festival itself. Now, allegedly, the asthma medication that he was taking and the bad cocaine that he had procured in Telerud ended up having a reaction. When he flew back to New York after the Telerud Film Festival, he started bleeding from the mouth and nose. He collapsed and ended up being sent to a hospital where it was found that he was hemorrhaging he was bleeding internally and on the verge of dying this led to one of my favorite things jay has ever said in the podcast which was cocaine and asthma doesn't mix <laughs> it's true <laughs> no yeah i it's mean an important the, public service you, announcement right there yeah, right the, are you were you a yep. were you an asthmatic jay i was not actually oh okay yeah we we were talking about this before the podcast start um started um um uh, we, were, we were talking about sports and going outside and stuff um before sitting down for i don't know how long this is the listener now can see exactly how long the podcast is and they're thinking like won't, won't andrew shut up so that darren can continue but it, there was a point there somewhere anyway yeah they, i'd like to i'd like to say like uh up front don't don't do cocaine if you have asthma. Um, I I agree with that. Um, they yeah. don't they don't mix. I think don't do cocaine is a complete sentence. <laughs> you don't need the qualification. Don't do cocaine is a complete sentence. Yep. Don't 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 do don't do co. Yes, yes, it is. Um, yeah, the the um, if you're going to do cocaine. Like, um, anyway, sorry, Darren, um, what were we All saying? Right, on that note, it was in hospital that Robert De Niro came to visit him. And basically they had a conversation that Scorsese in later years characterized as basically amounting to, do you want to live? You have to make a conscious choice to want to live. And in that conversation, they came up with Raging Bull. De Niro had been pushing Scorsese to make Raging Bull for quite a few years, dating back, I think, even before their collaboration on Taxi Driver. De Niro had read the book, uh, allegedly, now depending on different accounts. In some accounts, he'd read it while working on 1900, uh, on Bernardo Bellucci's 1900 in Italy. 
By other accounts, he'd read it while working on The Godfather Part 2, also involving filming in Italy. But he'd latched on to this idea, this idea of reading this novel as told by Jake LaMotta to Pete Savage, who has a small cameo in the film as one of the barmen that Joey meets uh, midway through at the Copacabana. De Niro and Scorsese agreed that the novel itself wasn't particularly good, the prose wasn't striking, the insight wasn't exactly profound, but that there was a little nugget of something nestled away inside the script. And again, the, the script and the story had a long and troubled development cycle. Scorsese managed to bully um, Paul Schrader, who was getting his own directorial career, uh, into doing six weeks of work on it, apparently visiting on the set of Hardcore to convince him to give a bit of time to the film. After that happened, De Niro and Scorsese themselves went out to the island of St. Martin, where they spent a couple of weeks recovering. Uh, Scorsese himself has subsequently compared it to Fellini's Eight and a Half, this idea of a spiritual recuperation, going away to paradise where he was not known, and just hanging out with De Niro, spending time with his best buddy, and writing and working on a script together. Scorsese has described Raging Bull as a kamikaze picture, as a film that he would be happy if it were the last film that he'd made. It was a film in which he insisted that there would be absolutely no compromise. There was a disagreement with producer Erwin Winkler over a bit of stray dialogue during a bar scene that caused Scorsese to famously insist that he have his own name taken off unless this problem was... Dramatic fixed. irony is delicious. Isn't this... Like, the, is this a movie about him making this movie? Quite possibly. Well, I think I think Scorsese's talked... Is he working through some stuff? Like, yes, I, Scorsese's talked about the film in that terms, in those terms. Everyone's telling him and he's pouring more ice water on his penis. Um, I don't know if that was exactly what happened, but... Uh, no, but metaphorically. Okay. Um, the, but no, no, Scorsese, Scorsese's talked about how this was very much a way of exercising some of his demons, of working through some of the stuff that was, you know, sort of occupying him. Working some through some of had, his cocaine? Uh, no, well, did, he, he did, did he have a whole lot of cocaine that he forgot to finish and he had to get... Anyway, sorry. Um, um, so he was working through his stuff? Yes. Well, that, that's generally his reading of it, is that he was kind of working through all this baggage that he had, trying to find a way out of what he described as rock bottom. Um, and trying to find a way to make peace with himself, and then treating the film as a metaphor for that. The film, when it was released, was not a huge box office success. It broke even, which was relatively successful by the standards of some of the films around the same time. So this was a time where many of those movies by those auteurs were kind of bombing spectacularly. But it was, despite the fact it generated some divisive critical press, it's obviously come to be accepted as one of the defining American films of the era. It is, depending on who you ask, the last great movie of the 70s or the only truly great movie of the 80s. It's commonly named as one of the best, as the best movie of the decade, highly ranked on just about every list um, that kind of ranks these sorts of movies, and is roundly considered to be, if not Scorsese's masterpiece, one of them, uh, and one of the most highly regarded. What idiot said it was the only great movie of the eighties? Um, it's a fair point. Yeah. The, 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 at what point did he say it was the only great movie of the eighties? Was it when it came out in nineteen eighty? Because that, because that's that's probably fair. Um, All right. So very quickly before we jump into the spore zone, three rounds of questions uh, just to get us all started. So Grace, yes, do you think that? Raging Bull belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made. I mean, I suppose of the ones I've seen, it's it's one of the better ones, especially because like this is one of those films that I feel like I had heard about my entire life 
and I sort of expected that I knew what it was about and what it would be like but it's also one of those films that having seen it and especially after having seen it a good 30 years after I first heard about it it's extremely mischaracterized as far as I can tell people seem to spend or at least my perception of it before seeing it was that it was this incredibly like violent brutal movie that was just about like one man inflicting terror on everyone around him and it's actually like very sad i find this movie just soul destroyingly poignant and a really sensitive take on the kind of empty very male despair that just people seem to celebrate in this world for some reason but i think it's a much more intelligent take on that than a lot of movies would be because it doesn't have any sympathy um for its hero in inverted commas and it doesn't glorify him either so i suppose from in that regard it probably does merit inclusion i would say because it's um it's one of the better takes on this kind of story i think it is worth noting that very famously like universal artists although they were relatively hands-off during production did have some qualms about it and very much like when scorsese came in to pitch the movie he was going to make like the universal uh, sorry the um the united artists executives said why are you making a movie about this man he's a cockroach um to which De Niro said he's not. He's not a cockroach. But apparently, yes, this was one of the kind of big pushbacks during development was that uh, Lamada was not likable in any way, shape yeah. or form. Well, I think that's true. I mean, like, I suppose it's kind of hard to characterize because in one sense, you know, you don't have sympathy for him. And I don't think the film sets out to make you have sympathy for him. But at the same time, you can sympathize with his situation and the world that made him the way that he is. So... I think there's this there's this weird perception that especially when you're exploring a cult of ego, um, that you know, that the the person at the center of it has to be pitched in some sort of vaguely likable way. But I I think this manages to tell that story without actually how would you put it? Yeah, without sympathizing for him. Or with him, rather, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's notable that when Lamada saw the film, he told the New York Times, I kind of look bad in it. <laughs> then he paused and said, then I realized it was true. He also tells a story about watching it with one of his ex-wives and saying, I wasn't that bad, was I? For her to respond, you were worse. Um, so, yeah, no, it, it's very much. That uh, seems a bit right. Yeah, I, I can I can believe that. What about yourself, Jay? Do you think that this belongs to the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Well, Considering the amount of dogs, like a great <laughs> definition, it, it absolutely does. But um, absolutely, I, I kind of largely agree with Grace there. And my thinking on the film has changed in that regard over the last five years or six years. And I, I've seen the film probably about 30 or 40 times at this stage um, in, the, in the last 20 odd years. Um, I think it's a remarkable film. Um, and it does what does get celebrated about it is interesting. And it, and that kind of, it kind of is how people discuss it, and it does get discussed every few years. It gets kind of brought up as a kind of film. Every so often, people say when they do a, a, Scors a new Scorsese film comes out, they you know dredge up the list of his best films, and it's interesting how people discuss it and see it at any particular time they talk about it. I think there's a lot more going on than the general takes tend to give it, and I think any film that kind of does the work, as Grace said, and the, the kind of depth it puts into a characterization. I think will last um, and I, so I think this will last in that regard so yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's kind of fascinating that you mentioned it kind of changing as you changed and kind of like you seeing it 30 times and yet at some point in the past five years seeing almost a would it be would it be too much to say that you saw almost a new movie in it um, not necessarily that I think 
I think there's certain moments in it that I might have missed. And I think you can be blinded to a certain degree by the, the, the technical prowess on show. And there's and like I watched it the other night when on the Criterion channel who had the Thomas Goonmaker and Scorsese commentary on it. And that's a remarkable education in and of itself. But so it kind of slows down the film a little bit. So you kind of get a little more out of it, I think. And and it's really interesting what they were trying to go for. And I think there's different things to wrestle with, particularly I think as you get older. And because you're trying to kind of token old guy on the podcast, I'm kind of I kind of think of it in various different ways in that regard. You're not old, Jay. We're hitting that sweet demographic. Yeah. We need, we wanted yep. someone okay. around Martin Scorsese's age, so. Um... But then couldn't get him, eh? <laughs> then we had no. to round down. Um... Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, sorry. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take yeah, it, Andrew. It's okay. And Andrew, what about yourself, actually? Um, so do you um, think that Raging Bull belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? And in terms of your relationship with Scorsese, because I know you're... In terms of my the... relationship with Scorsese. <laughs> yeah. Darren knows that I don't like Scorsese, so decided to do an entire summer of Scorsese movies. <laughs> because he hates me. Um, in that so... very passive-aggressive sort of Jake Lovato <laughs> kind of way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, but that's okay because I love you, Darren. Um, I, I'm. I, if the listeners are wondering um, why there's mouth noises coming from me, I'm, I'm eating some food. Um, at least, at least it's meant to be called food. I mean, I would hope in a podcast there are plenty you, of mouth noises. Do happening. you call this a chicken wing? Do you call this a chicken wing? Um. It's still pretty good, um, but um, um, it's an important celebration of good old-fashioned masculinity. Um, it's glorification of a true American hero. And it's a very sympathetic portrait of a great man. Um, so yes, um, I I think it belongs under under two fifty. Um, was anything you just said <laughs> enough trolling? To be the, la- the, la- the last part was true. I, I do I do think it belongs under 250. Um, okay. All right. And then second question, Grace. Um, would it be on your own personal 250? So your own personal favorite 250 movies? It might be. It's kind of hard to tell. It's something that I suppose I hadn't really thought that much about it since the first time I watched it. And as much as I liked it and as much as I admire it as a film, um, I can see it being something that's going to be hugely significant in my own kind of personal canon, as it were. But um, but that said, like it, I, I think it's it does a much better job at the type of story it's trying to tell than a lot of other movies, I think. And for that reason, maybe just as an example of how to tell that kind of story, I think I could see myself maybe including it. If I ever actually sat down and wrote a list of 250 films. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, efforts. So much efforts. Well, what else are people doing in lockdown? <laughs> that's that's the price that's the price of entry. Like you, you have to do that before you can come on the podcast. Like many people want to be on the podcast. I'll just be the mummy 250 <laughs> times. There are, there are certainly worse choices. Um all right, and Jay, what about yourself? I suspect we know the answer to this one, ah, given yeah. that it... I mean, okay. it would be for me, for sure. Um, but that's, you know, yeah. But I don't think there's any real surprise there. As our kind of requisite Scorsese expert, is, you know, is this still your favorite Scorsese film? Would it be in your top 10? How does it rank? 
Oh, actually, that's interesting because it, it's been a, a little while since I've kind of re-looked at that kind of thing. Um, it, it'd be top five for sure. Okay, top three nice. probably. Nice. Uh, um, Would all of the Scorsese movies be in the top two fifty four J? Like in your own no, personal two fifty. <laughs> Which I, I ones would be safely be out? Yeah, Silence. Uh, the Departed would be out. The Departed would be out. <laughs> Which is going to make for a fun discussion when that happens. Oh, it is. I can't wait. <laughs> Silence can shut up. The Departed, get out of here. Um, yeah, the Departed yeah. can depart. Yeah. All right. And Andrew, what about yourself? Would Raging Pull be on your own personal 250, your own 250 favorite movies? Uh, like, as far as Scorsese movies go, kind of, it, it might. Like, like if, 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 if one of the kind of criteria that I set myself for my own personal 250 is that it must include one Scorsese movie. It's possible this might be it. Now, having said that, we have just seemingly watched some other Scorsese movie last week um, that maybe I said the same thing about. I don't remember. Um, or maybe it hasn't <laughs> happened. Um, but um, so far, um, because every week starts a new... Um, having watched it, I, 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 thought it, was, it, I thought it was fantastic. It mightn't be in my top two, 250 movies because I, I don't like, um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not mad about, like, every Scorsese movie seems to be about disgusting people. Um, and it's just gross and makes you feel like you need a shower. Um, Join but, us for our discussion of Hugo in the second half of the season. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, like, like, like it, it actually does have a chance because, because, and the reason is because it is genuinely sad. It's also very funny. Um, is is um, it's very profound. Like, I'm, I'm interested in, in kind of the, the, the kind of personal journey of the, the, the filmmaker and of the character that's kind of there because it, it's, it. It's very it it is it is a very interesting movie. It's also very topical in in kind of weird ways. Um, so like yeah, it stands a chance. It, I might it might it might be on my two fifty, and I'm not precious about what's on my two fifty because I don't care. So yes, <laughs> it's so on my two fifty. There are absolutely no stakes, but yes, <laughs> there are no stakes. Yeah, yeah. Why would I tell it that it can't be on my two fifty? Like, what has the movie done to me that I'd want it not to be on my list? So yeah, okay. we'll, we'll, um, yes, I'm, I'm going to press green. Um, is it on my list now? I guess it is. Um, and then final question before we jump into the spoiler zone. So Grace, if listeners have not seen Raging Bull yet, if they've not watched it, would you recommend they pause the podcast, stay at home and stream it? I mean, probably not in the current environment because it's a bit depressing. But in general, I think it's worth a watch. And Jay... Yeah, it's 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 not really a lockdown watch. <laughs> I would probably agree with that. I mean, it's it's I can I can understand why somebody would avoid it, but uh, you know, if you want to celebrate everything coming back out coming alive again, I can't think of anything better than this <laughs> to, to, to put a mark on you and say, "Calm it down, there, chief." <laughs> yeah, I love the idea of like we're getting back into the world. That's what's yeah. raging bull. That's Nature is healing. You can't be what's having the crack bull? all the time. You can't exactly you keep yourself you humble. Can't. Stay home well, is exactly it. Like, what's this? Yeah, it would be interesting to see kind of if if there's other people who like Scorsese um, have been 
um, suffering from an addiction to massive cocaine. And if they want to process those feelings, kind of like with, with an appropriate movie, because of course during the lockdown it's very difficult to get cocaine because it's not, um, it's not like hygienic to be, you know, um, um, handling and, um, and all of that sort of stuff. So I've heard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially if you have asthma. Um, so yeah, the, it wasn't my chance. Was it? Was it my turn to recommend? Yes, <laughs> Sorry. it was. Oh, um, I would recommend it. Yes, if people have not seen it, see it. If you have seen it before, as I had, um, see it again, as I have just done, um, because it's good. It's very good. It's a very good movie. Um, if if you have a choice between this and a movie that's not good, choose this one because it's better. Because it is good. Yeah, exactly. I sound like I'm in a Scorsese movie because I'm just saying the same thing over and over again. It's like, I'm just saying it's a good movie. Now, what do you mean it's good? It's a good movie. It's good. I like it. It's good. I think it's good. I think you should watch it. It's good. Um, it, it, that, Don't that worry, goes... we're going to cut to another scene of Andrew telling Darren that it's good. And then Andrew's going <laughs> to tell Jay that Jay should tell Darren that it's good, you know? That, that, like, I, and then I, Andrew I re- explains that Darren won't listen. <laughs> they wouldn't dare. I know that I know that Jay really likes um Scorsese. Um but but Darren really likes Nolan and he got like on for the the, the uh, Inception podcast, um, in fairness. The, the, okay. the, but but like is is it fair that like Scorsese um like I like I, I, I liked this movie, but it kinda had a lot of the sort of Things uh, about Scorsese that I guess you either love or, or, or kind of could do without. I don't know. What do you guys yeah, think? That's fair. It is very much, it is that Scorsese movie. It's an uncompromised Scorsese movie to a certain yeah. extent. Again, that description of it as a kamikaze movie. The idea that he's talking about how he didn't want to make 10 boring studio films. He figured he'd make one film that he wanted to and if he was done, he was done, basically. Uh, which is kind of interesting because after Raging Bull, you entered the 80s, which is Martin Scorsese's Let's Get Paid decade, uh, which is kind of fun, but we'll probably talk about that next week. All right, is then, he... with that in mind, then, we'll... Oh no! I was going to ask, like, had he had he already ditched cocaine by the eighties? Yes. Right. Is that good timing? It probably is. Like, anyway. <laughs> With... That's a conversation for next week when we talk about like Scorsese during the eighties, where there was very much where... that one for you, one for me program. There'll be no discussion of of cocaine next week. Probably not. I don't know. I don't. I can't predict these things. Uh, but anyway, so yes. Have we already yes, recorded yes. next week's podcast, by the way? No. No, <laughs> no we haven't. Okay. All right. Join us on the other side of the Spoiler Zone. Spoiler Zone! So, so, Grace, what is Raging Bull about for you? Well, I mean, I think that's a difficult one to sum up because I would say this movie is about men and and men's cells sense of self-importance um but beyond that it's about the structures and particularly in terms of class and violence and everything else that kind of intersect i suppose to maintain that that sense of entitlement and superiority because i think the thing that stood out to me about this was that i sort of expected it as i said earlier to be this kind of uncompromising really violent take that would just be really kind of savage and indulgent and everything else and the thing that really strikes me is the way it sort of 
the way it's structured and the way it tries to capture the different forces that sort of conspire in a very um, feral way to make Jake LaMotta the way that he is. So he's constantly told that he should be better and he should be doing this and he should be doing that in the ring. And then, you know, when that never really seems to work out for him or whenever the exalted image that he and people around him seem to have of him never seems to actually materialize. He takes it out on the people around him, starting obviously with his wife and then with his brother and then with other people and how it just becomes, which I suppose in one sense is kind of cliche, this idea of someone who's a major kind of athlete or, or public figure who feels like they're not being respected enough. So they start to violently seek that respect at home. But I think what I liked about Raging Bull was just the way that it flits between these really, um, how would you put it? Visceral, that's the word I'm looking for. These really kind of visceral fights in the ring with this completely more stylistic, almost timeless sense of life within a neighborhood and a community and how that, how that kind of ongoing life and unchanging life never lives up to what happens in the ring. Like I just, I think the way it approaches it in that sense is what makes the film stand out for me. And the way, when I say like it's about men and, and male rage and everything else, it's a much more sensitive take on it. Like that's what I yeah. mean. Um, Just very quickly on that actually, in terms of kind of the discussion of, of Jake LaMotta and that idea of kind of being a man and kind of, you know, be, not just being a man in the sense of being a, a person with a penis that you pour ice on, in being a human being, sorry, in being kind of somebody who is more than just an animal. Because um, you do have that kind of repeated comparison throughout two animals. You have that argument that happens in the apartment where the neighbor's shouting at them, calling them animals, and Jake's reacting against that. You have kind of the sequence later on where he, you know, accuses his brother of being an animal, and that's why women don't want to be near him. And even that scene at the end in the jail where he's, you know, saying, I am not an animal. I'm not an animal. I'm I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. Uh, but it's notable that, like, for example, during the fight sequences, Frank Warner, um, who was the sound effects editor, would actually mix in um, animal sounds into the fight, into the mix, in order to kind of give that sense of kind of savagery and that sense of like Lamata kind of basically becoming less human as a result, becoming sort of a or being seen as being feral. So like noises like tiger screeching, noises like elephants uh, braying, for example, to suggest the torture. And then, like an, sorry, an, ele an elephant's cock. Um, did did is he not an animal? I like like the 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 thing the, the thing about this movie is that he very much is because like he 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 can't he can't fix a television he 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 doesn't understand how um you know social interactions look at work the 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 there there's there's a kind of a confusion about him there 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 is something very kind of you know bestial and um I don't know, atavistic, um, and um, I'll give a fourth word, the third, uh, feral. Um, I, I, I think that's a word that, 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 that a couple of people have already, have, um, I think Grace said feral, and I think it's spot on. Um, yeah, but I suppose I find that kind of thing interesting because like, you know, when animals are violent, it's literally a fight for survival. So the idea that we liken human beings to animals when they're particularly violent never makes sense to me because human beings don't have to be violent in the same way that animals do. It's just abdicating responsibility by implying that he has no control over his actions in the same way that an animal wouldn't. But that's an existential conversation for another day. 
I, <laughs> well, it, the, the, I don't know, Darren. Is it a conversation for another day? I, I find, I find this this interesting because there's this idea of like two interpretations of it. It's either it's either a glorification of violence, or it's um, it's a kind of a, like a demonstration of how self-destructive violence is. But I think part of the um, allure of violence for people who are violent is that it is self-destructive. Um, like, you know, it, it, it's it's not it's not about it's not the, it's not about destroying another person necessarily. Like that, it, that I, mean, I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes people are very sadistic, but sometimes violence is very masochistic. Like they, 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 the fact that things don't work out well for Jake, I don't think is. Uh, I don't think means that this this isn't um, a movie that glorifies um, uh, violence for a very sort of um, um, uh, kind of animalistic audience. Does that make sense? Well, this is the kind of classic Scorsese paradox where you get into the kind of question of is depiction inherently endorsement and, you know, are Scorsese's films effectively glorifications? And not only, obviously, of this male rage here, but, I mean, you, you could talk about, like, Taxi Driver and its portrayal of Travis Bickle last week, and we'll probably undoubtedly talk about it when we get to Gangsters next week, or even, say, Jordan Belford in The Wolf of Wall Street. It's something that kind of Scorsese's films have always had hanging over them. And I kind of, I find myself, I tend to side more with the idea that, you know, depiction is not necessarily endorsement and Scorsese generally stays on the right side of, you know, that kind of, I think, Catholic morality of, well, bad people will be punished and people who, uh, you know, do not do, people who do not behave themselves will end up trapped in some sort of purgatory or hell as a result. Um, that's existential in nature. Uh, I do think that's there. So I tend to give Scorsese the benefit yeah, but of the doubt. But like I can see... in, 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 in the Catholic um, kind of um, philosophy, um, everyone is going to have a terrible time in this world and the next, you know. So like... like, like... Isn't they living up to it so far? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean... I mean, are we all Catholics now? Do we all do we, do we all just accept that yeah, we're right, you've all got it covered? It's not just Catholicism. Yeah. <laughs> that we're, we're we're not meant to be happy. We will suffer in this world so that we can go to purgatory eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but again, Scorsese's movies tend to tend to trap their villains or their kind of characters in purgatory, and you have like Henry Hill going to live in the suburbs where he has terrible, you know, meatball sauce or whatever, and you have By the, the way, idea that all the work. It, Yep. By the way, I have some wonderful meatball sauce. What's this called? See, it's you're, it's not like a, you're not in purgatory. Yeah, it's it's it's, but it's weird because it's actual noodles. That's what Henry Hill didn't like in 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 his dish. But these are noodles and meatballs. It's strange. It's like a kind of a masamam curry thing. When I, I but I can't remember what it's called. It's from Camille. It's good. Yeah. Other 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 takeaways are also available. <laughs> other takeaways are also available. Yeah, you can go you can go to Saba or you can go to Canoodle. That's quite clever. I do like that one. Of course you do there. Yeah, it's um it, it's it's Darren's uh, Thai restaurant. Um if Darren ate Thai food. Um uh -huh. do you eat Thai food, Darren? I can on occasion. Okay. I like Thai. You like Thai, I like shirts. 
Um, but yes, quick one. Anyway, so just on on that kind of on that kind of morality thing, I tend to you know we probably had this discussion last week. We'll probably have it again next week. But in terms of that uh, that barrier that exists between depiction and endorsement, do we think that like this is a question that when you watch Scorsese films, is it on Scorsese that hit you know that audiences react the way that they do? Like we talked about like that idea of there being bad fans of Raging Bull or people who watch Raging Bull and maybe get the wrong takeaway from it. And kind of Grace talked a little bit about how so much of her early impression of the film before she'd seen it came from that sort of impression of it. Is that well, Scorsese's fault as a director? Do we blame him for that, or is no, that ambiguity? Okay, okay, cool. Sorry, it's a film. I mean, Jesus yeah. Christ, like. No, I think that's just people who who read movies wrong. People are always just going to see to some extent what they want. Yeah, that's, that's standard, though. I think that happens a lot. I think Scorsese I is as even-handed a filmmaker as anybody else. Just because people are violent, you know. So people. Yeah, are mm-hmm. I want to. I'd, I'd I'd like to push back against this idea that there's a wrong interpretation of a movie. Of course, there is. <laughs> no, that's the one that's against Moya. <laughs> right, be, be, because like, everybody else's, um, yeah. Because do you you realize that most of Darren's fun comes in interpreting movies in a way that the director never intended, and that that's his his joy, and that interpretation is 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 generative, like and and as Darren would say himself, if people if people want to enjoy this movie, then like more power to them. Um, it's, it's it, enjoy it all they want doesn't mean they're right. But I, I mean, I mean, who decides whether they're right or not? Anybody like, enjoy Spielberg doesn't know what his movies are about. Other people have to tell him. Yes, he does. He's about they're about dads. Yeah, but other people have to actually tell him that. Apparently, if you believe Bollocks. the uh, inside the actor studio and stuff like that. I do not believe inside the actor studio. <laughs> <laughs> And that is the I think though that's a that's a fair thing that a lot of people are who might pick up on on a very obvious thematic recurrence in other movies may not necessarily be able to interpret their own films in the same way. Yeah, nobody knows what they're doing. Yeah, but then we can interpret it for them. I'm happy because to do that. Because if people were able to do that easily, all of us, then psychology would not exist as a field. Oh. Can I remark that I do like that Andrew? Uh, was generated his own generative interpretation of Darren to apply a generative interpretation of Scorsese, which I really, really admired there. Um, Thank you, Darren. And and again, like I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of I'm just um I'm just talking. I've no notes. Nobody can tell. This all sounds like I've I've, I've scripted it tightly. But um but then there there'll be like a podcast about the podcast where they'll they'll talk about like what does Darren mean when he says this, is he being sincere? Um, who, what does Andrew represent? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and it's, it's um, like, they're, are they right? Are they wrong? I don't know. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean, do, 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 do we, do we give ourselves too much credit when we, when we say kind of like, oh, I understand the movie, but this person didn't understand the movie and taught something else. No, I think like I think people can get their own interpretations of something, and that's absolutely fine. And no, nobody's stopping anybody doing that. But they're wrong. <laughs> well, they're wrong to me. I mean, that's fine. But nobody can do what I think either. So you know. Yeah. No, I, again, this is the thing that I actually I do really like about Scorsese as a filmmaker is that he's one of those directors where you do have that level of. To, you know, sort of discussion around that level of ambiguity and that level of ambivalence, where he consciously leaves these spaces, I think, deliberately and intentionally. I mean, like, both De Niro and... Are they uh, Lacunas? Them... 
Look, if you will, yes. Liminal spaces as well is another one that I like to drop in and into the conversation like this. But I mean, uh, more more specifically though, both De Niro and Scorsese have talked about how for them. And again, this is one of the interesting things about Raging Bull. So one of the criticisms leveled against Raging Bull by, for example, Kathleen Carroll in the New York Daily News was that Raging Bull didn't act, doesn't actually get inside Jake LaMotta's head. It doesn't pathologize him. Uh, Jake LaMotta is, quote, one of the most repugnant characters in the history of the movies and went on to criticize Scorsese because the movie, quote, totally ignores LaMotta's reform school background offering no explanation as to his antisocial behavior. And again, it's been noted that like the script went through various iterations. Um, there was an earlier version of the script before I think Paul Schrader came on, which dealt with his entire life and kind of went back to say his childhood, his relationship with his father and his mother in order to explain why LaMotta ended up the way that he did. And Scorsese chose to kind of consciously take all of that stuff out. And it's been argued, and I think Scorsese himself and both De Niro have made this argument that what drew them to the project uh, was in part, and I think Grace kind of alluded to this earlier, the idea of forcing comfortable art house middle class audiences into a position where they were confronted with a perspective that was much less articulate, much more violent, and much more working class than theirs. So the idea that Jake LaMotta can't articulate, can't necessarily explain his pathology or the reason that he acts in the way that he does um, was part of like what they want to do in terms of challenging audiences instead of providing easy answers to force the audience to like look at the man as he is and try and make sense of him and I think that Richard Brody um, in The New Yorker has argued that this is the kind of the strength of the film is that the film avoids giving us kind of a Freudian psychology of the man refuses to give us a kind of a causal explanation for why he is the way he is and just kind of presents him as is, and kind of asks us to kind of look at him and to interrogate him. I think and that's... I, I think one of the most interesting things about the movie as well is that it's not just about Jake. Like, I, I, I think, I think that, like, if, if you were to criticise the movie and say, oh, you don't get inside the head of Jake and the movie's all about Jake, is that a name of a band, by the way? Is there a band called All About Jake? Do they play ska music? Anyway, um... If that was the movie, then then maybe that would be a problem, but it's not. It's he's a character in this movie. It's it's there's there's some very rich satire in in this and kind of social commentary. Um, that's quite important. That that it's, Scorsese is saying something about his community, um, as well as kind of telling this story about. Uh, um, about Jake LaMotta. Like they're, they're, um, so when it comes to kind of um, exploring his psychology and coming to kind of any conclusions about it, either you do or you don't. Um, I would argue as well that um, far from not getting into Jake LaMotta's head, or I would argue the film doesn't get out of his head. I think a huge portion of the film is from his POV and his view, yeah. Yeah. On, like his view on his family in terms of a view of his community and even touching on what you said uh, that grace mentioned about class i mean the the use of the word animals to describe working class people as being ongoing for eons and like this gets at that very clearly um you know you could translate it to different countries but essentially your average use of scumbag or work or animals is being used to a lot and the scorsese is very clear about this this is tenement living essentially 
at the start of the film. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, this is this is all there. It's very clear where um, some people act the way you expect them to act as a you almost. You know, this is what this is the this is the society yeah. that you get. This is the people that you get when you treat people like this. What do you oh, want yeah, from I mean, me? The thing. Yeah, but I, I, I also think though that like. Well, I think it's a good thing that they didn't decide to go into a gigantic lump of his background. But also, like, one of the strengths of the movie, to my mind, is that it doesn't feel the need to explain why he is the way that he is. Like, I don't necessarily think that this was intentional, but definitely my reading of it, especially in a latter day context, is that everybody knows why he is the way that he is. Because there are millions of him being openly celebrated every day. And this, the, what makes this movie a little bit different is that it doesn't just go, like, it doesn't seem to imply that him being an absolute scumbag to everyone around him is necessary in order for him to maintain this cult of personality. It's an extension of that, and it's maybe created that sense of aggrandizement in him, but it's also very clear, I think, that that's his downfall, and that it's not good not only for yeah. him, but for everyone around him. I mean, yeah. it is worth noting in that context that uh, I think the movie is quite clear that uh, it exists in a wider social context. Like, repeatedly throughout, you have this idea that Jake is particularly savage or particularly brutal or particularly violent. But, like, throughout the film, you have this recurring motif of violence and aggression. Like, at the first boxing match, the fight breaks out in the audience. You have that horrible kind of claustrophobic shot of the woman being trampled underneath the feet of the men who are scrambling desperately around. Later on, you have them fighting at the Italian social. You have them fighting at the Copa Cabana, for example. You have them fighting at a dance. Mm-hmm. You have this idea that like violence is just part of the way that this this place works. Even Joey, who normally like you know Joey, his brother, who is, seems much more level headed, who seems much what? more rational, who's present. No, oh, okay. We, Sorry, we, hold we, on. Me, <laughs> no, relative. I won't. Everything. Take oh, that back. Okay, okay. Joey. Take that back, you break. Okay, Joey, who gets along easier with people who wear fancy suits, then? Can we agree on that as a definition of Joey? Well, Joey I don't... I, also... they, I, I, okay, okay. No, no, I... Because I, I, I think this comes back to something that 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 um, that, 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 that Grace and, and, and Jay were, 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 were both relating to, is, is this idea of him as an animal. But yet Jake actually wants to be a human being. And one, one wants to um, kind of overcome the um, kind of stereotype that's uh, been um, been placed upon him in some ways, because uh, like the easiest thing for him to do is to be um, in cahoots with organized crime. Everybody wants him to, and it's the way to do it. Um, and there, 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 there's there's so much. There are so much bad things just kind of expected of him that he's trying to resist against and yet still manages to be a terrible person. I'm about to say, do we think that's that's what it is? Do we think that he's resisting them on like a principle or just like on the fact that he, he can't fathom giving up part of his own independence to them? That he's it's so self-involved pride, that he refuses. It? Yeah, yeah, it's pride. It's 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 not th- like any moral principle. It's pride. No, I think I, I, I think I think he thinks of them as animals personally. I don't think his brother is better because he um, he hangs around with gangsters, and it, it's it's. Um, but I, yeah. I think that's a little simplistic. I think yeah, for for like Jake speaks a certain language, and that language is very much rooted in violence. And what makes his brother different from him is that he's better at playing the politics of it. And yeah. I don't think Jake understands a world where you have to like 
compromise or make deals or negotiate in a certain way like it's everything for him is a lot more basic yeah base maybe is a better way of putting it but like i I think that's what it is yeah yeah i mean clear like and again joey is very much established joey is very similar to jake in a sense of you know he said he threatens his wife early on i'm gonna make you cry which is very obviously a threat of domestic violence later on he's seen having dinner with his kid his kid threatens to kind of his kid takes something off his plate he's like gonna stab you with this knife for example but even later on where he has the brawl in the copacabana and you know smashes a gangster's head you know with a car door it's very clear that by the way a prequel just as Uh, yes very much kind of setting up uh, later on this is like where does this belong in terms of prequels and sequels for scorsese movies because this is another robert de niro doesn't know how televisions work um movie where um in taxi driver um he uh, foolishly knocks over his television um and in this movie here he, he can't repair it yeah, exactly. So did um, does it belong more with with um, with Taxi Driver in the um, can't work a television um, canon, or or is or is this the? Yeah, I mean, and then, and then we and then we naturally build towards the Irishman where he watches television and it just works. I think Frank way. Vincent had passed away, so Joe Pesci didn't have a chance to beat this him in the Irishman. Um, well, again, Frank Vincent and Joe Pesci obviously have an interesting relationship on screen Scorsese movies, but we'll talk about that next week and the week after as well. Because um, that is that is another Scorsese recurring trope that happens. But I do think that there is something kind of in that, in the idea that you know Jake is as the, the like Jake is violent, but the world around him is also violent, and he's learned to basically internalize that, and he's learned to express that, and he's found a way to use that to better his station as much as he can. And even like when you mention like his sense, Jake's sense of importance and worth and value, early on it's notable that he measures that in terms of fighting. Like when he sits down with Joey, his big existential frustration is that he's never going to get to fight Joe Lewis. He's never going to compete against a heavyweight. And there's this sense of like existential frustration there. It's not like I'm never going to be rich. I'm never going be famous i'm never going to escape this situation that i'm in it's i'm never going to get to punch this one guy who i really really want to punch and validate me as being stronger or better than him at being you know the best that there is at fighting at knocking a guy down in a ring and that's why my life is meaningless which is you know i think yeah it's a strange thing in boxing this idea that um this obsession with with um with heavyweights um and it, it, it's 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 never really kind of struck me um, as like I suppose it, it's not a terribly important point, but um, I, I I feel I feel like just middleweights are better. You got like a heavyweight; they're just too big. Like they 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 they. I think people like it because there's more knockouts or something. Is that what it is? It's because they're heavier, so that they can kind of knock people out uh, uh, faster. I think middleweight is a good balance. Of being like big enough to knock somebody out, um, uh, fast enough to not get knocked out too quickly, right? I mean, well, keep in mind that this podcast is, you know, we're doing, talking about Martin Scorsese, who Scorsese himself never watched boxing, had no interest in boxing, and didn't want to make a boxing. Well, movie. I think Scorsese said about Rachel Ball that uh, the reason why he was interested it was not to do with boxing. I mean, he changed, yeah. like it doesn't look like boxing, even the ten minutes of boxing there it is. It's stylishly yeah. and rigorously performed and and planned for particular thematic reasons as opposed to the boxing matches and he talked about boxing as like uh his interest in it of being because it reduces life literally to the most basic element 
of one of the basic elements of like it's just pure you punch him he punches you and somebody will win and there's something in that violence somewhere that you can find and get at yeah and in that sense arguably you know jake is perhaps more honest than some of the people around him in expressing that violence but that violence is absolutely everywhere and inflects every part of his life yeah. um, which is incredibly bleak and depressing and i think does kind of tie back into that sense that we talked about the psychology of Jake because you did mention that the film is very much shot from Jake's perspective his POV it puts us in his world you could argue even the choice to shoot in black and white kind of which narrows down the kind of range of colour spectrum on display which apparently Scorsese chose to shoot in black and white because at New York New York which he'd shot only a couple of years earlier was already fading on film stock so he didn't want to have to worry about that I think this is only his second film in black and white after Who's Knocking at My Door which was his debut Um, and I think it's is it his only black and white one to date or is, he hasn't done a black and white one since no i'm asking our scorsese expert cool no perfect. He perfect um and also just in terms of say the expressions and the way that the the ring is shot that famously when they shot those boxing rings and it's only 10 minutes of fight footage in the entire film took 10 weeks of shooting and what they would do is they'd actually physically extend the ring and make it longer and wider in order to reinforce those um scorsese shot you know sort of like storyboarded the sequences um, like, like like a little comic book basically shot for shot to go through it uh, but even say outside of the ring the way in which the camera uses say slow motion for example in sequences uh, with his wife and with his brother in order to put you in his kind of paranoid kind of claustrophobic headspace yeah. so I think that it's kind of interesting that while it doesn't pathologize Jake it doesn't say well he's he's angry because his father beat him like a lesser film would do it does do an interesting thing in putting the audience kind of literally in his shoes and that I think you feel the way that he does for a lot of the film. I mean, Andrew joked when we started this podcast that he felt really angry having just watched the film. But I think that's that's an interesting aspect of it. I think it puts you in his shoes, in his position, without yeah, it does, any he used, kind of... It does use slow motion in that regard. And it, it's look, it's literally imprinting certain behaviours on his mind. So he, yeah. can, he can dissect later in his own head of, the, you know, yeah. is he seeing betrayal? Is he seeing... Are these people too close? Yeah. Yeah. Is she leaning in too much? Um, Did her lips brush against his? Is his hand lingering a bit too long? That sort of stuff. There's a lot of questions that go unanswered and it's kind of one of the better things. Sorry, sorry. I like the movie, but it's a a great thing about the movie actually is, is that it does leave a lot of those questions unanswered. Well, you never find out if they're having an affair, that affair, you never find out whether or not it's inside his head. Um, which is so kind of interesting. It's what what a fair down. You yeah. just don't want to say any, any bad words. I think it should uh, it should be acknowledged well that uh, Kathy Moriarty is absolutely fantastic in this. And so good, yes. incredible. She gives De Niro such hell in it. Like uh, I remember shouting down the stairs when he's going down. It's like it's <laughs> cock is bigger than yours as well, which I actually love as a line. And her delivery of it is incredible. Uh. Yeah, this was her first film, um, literally found through a talent search for this. Apparently, Joe Pesci saw her in a disco dancing lineup, uh, was apparently where he spotted her and kind of suggested that she would be good for the role. Sorry, Pesci what? what? Yeah. No, disco what does dancing. that mean? Young people do. In a disco dancing lineup? Yeah, it was like 19... It was a nightclub. Just the disco... So the DJ says, okay, guys, um, I hope you all have your roller skates on. Now it's time for the lineup, and emceeing um, the lineup this evening is a Mister Joe Pesci. And then all what what all the girls line up and they do disco dancing. What's a disco lineup, Darren? I don't know. I'm just 
reading from notes that I have here. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, like if listeners at home want to create some fan art of, of what a disco uh, uh, lineup, lineup is, might like, possibly look like. Yeah. If anyone is still listening, which, which they should, because we've got great guests. Uh, Jay, what did you think about the disco lineup? I loved it. Also, just to be worth pointing out that Pesci and Frank Vincent were in a band together. So that's probably where all this came from. Yes. Yeah. Again, it's worth noting again, we talked about this, I think, on The Irishman. That's, uh, Pesci didn't want to be an actor. But and somehow ended up almost being an actor against his will. And, but he eventually became a musician, didn't he? He had that rap album. He did have a rap album, um, which, again, is, is kind of fascinating to kind of think about and discuss. But in terms of kind of that discussion of kind of Raging Bull, and actually because you mentioned uh, Kathy Moriarty, because you mentioned Vicky, the film's attitude towards sex and sexuality is uh, interesting, I think. What um, do you think is interesting about it there? What do you think is the message sexually? Again, it, it, it's movie. arguably... It's arguably, again, Scorsese's attitude, where I think the only Scorsese film that is explicitly sexual is the first one, Who's Knocking at My Door, where he had to actually cut in um, nudity in order to get the film released and distributed. Um, so there's this kind of, again, I wonder if that Catholicism at play, where there's this sense of kind of like restraint and chastity well, there. He did talk about the fact that it slows down the film. Literally, yeah. it slows down the sex scenes slows down the film. And I, I completely agree with him. I'm uh, not a big fan well, of sex scenes in films. But th- this movie, this movie is a cautionary. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, I think this is a very sexless movie. There's it is. Like, there's an, and 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 it wouldn't fit if it were in there. Like, there's no room for it. I think the um, it's much more effective in terms of capturing the power dynamics within relationships without adding that element of it. Yeah, I do. I totally is, agree with that. Is it a cautionary tale about about not having sex? Oh, is a um, box in that? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> like the 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 like repeatedly throughout the movie, everyone keeps saying to him, like, "What the what what the fuck is the matter with you? You should have sex, you know. That's what you should do." They like the solution all the time to his problem from his brother seems to be either start having sex or leave your wife. And like he 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 could probably do both of those things. Um, then and and and. And maybe um, maybe it wouldn't be a very good movie because there wouldn't I, I be so much conflict. I think that's a male um, thing, though. It's this idea that, you know, men tinker with their dicks kind of thing was uh, quite... Right. I, I think, to be fair, though, she is, she says as much to Joey when she's in the Copacabana. She, she says does. Quite there's nothing happening. Uh, she, but I think I think what's interesting about this, though, is the way... I don't think she quite literally suggests... says there's nothing happening there. Are we seriously not okay. going to curse on the um, Scorsese well, you, um, you, summer of you, movies? You, you've already cursed. You've already cursed quite a great deal. I'm, I'm imagining what I'm going to replace it with. Um, Do it, Darren. No, just... just uh, in, terms, in terms of sexuality, though, what I find interesting is this kind of idea of sublimation that runs through it. And again, I think, I think that there is something in what Andrew's saying, where there's this sense that, that Jake... Because Jake isn't willing to consummate or open himself up sexually, as a result, he acts out through violence. And you have that juxtaposition, you know, that shot of him famously pouring ice water down his pants, which apparently was one of the sequences that United Artists subjected to when they read the script. They're like, what, you're going to pour ice down his on his erection? It says ice on his erection here in the script. It's like, no, 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 we'll shoot it artistically. It'll be fine. Uh, but you have kind of like... This, this juxtaposition of that sequence with the sequence after the fight where he plunges his wrists into the ice as well, as if to kind of draw a connection between those through and kind of how it happens throughout. And you have this kind of way in which kind of this fixation that he has. And again, it, it's this very stereotypical toxic masculine kind of thing where 
he's very fascinated by Vicky's sex life. Um, in particular, the idea that she should be virginal before he's met her. So like when he's at the pool talking about her, his first question is, does she go with people? Which is, is very explicitly, is she a virgin at this point? And then it's like, oh, by the way, Joey, have you had sex with her yet? And it's, you know, again, there's this real sense that for him to be interested in her, she has to be kind of virginal. That and scene is 10 tennis- minutes long. <laughs> Just saying. Did you time it? No, no. I, I mean, in my, in my brain, it's 10 minutes long. Like, yeah. <laughs> like nobody in a Scorsese movie ever asks a question and is satisfied with the answer, you know? After, like, no, no, tell me, tell me honestly. What, um, um, anyway, sorry. But, no, the, 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 it's, like, does anyone want to acknowledge that this is a disgusting movie? Like, the, I mean, I mean, I mean like, it's, it's, and it's it's kind of like what Scorsese does is he makes movies with like loads of sex with minors and um, um, like I know we recommended this movie because it's good and everything but it's also really um, it's like Is there a problem with me that this is uh, that this movie is disgusting? No, I think that's a fair point. No, I think it's meant to be. I think I think that it is very intentionally so. No, I, was I mean, just gonna we... say, I think okay. like one of the things that also stood out to me, especially because there's, I think like we might have mentioned earlier this idea that the film is in some way misogynistic, which I don't think it is, but I do think it is in part about misogyny and the way like the very first way that men especially not only within the working class but within this kind of working class environment where everything is so violent and so pressurized the very first way that men expect to establish their own dominance is by establishing dominance over their domestic setup so that means like completely domineering and controlling and abusing the women in their lives and using them as status symbols and chattel to reinforce their own idea of superiority before they ever get into establishing superiority over other men. And I think this film shows that quite well, not just in the way that Jake treats the women in his life, but the way his brother treats women, the way literally everyone in this movie treats women. Like, even when they have to insult each other, they're always very misogynistic slurs that they use. So... Oh, and and homophobic as well. I think, like Andrew was saying, the fact that, like, everyone is clearly at least marginally pedophilic just reinforces that. I mean, and again, it is worth noting that this is the rare 1970s movies where that kind of creepy fascination with underage women actually results in a semi-serious punishment for the character in question. We've talked about this weird fetishization that runs through 70s Hollywood movies, most notably in, is it One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where Jack Nicholson's character is consigned to the institution for statutory rape, and it's presented as, gee, man, isn't he a hero? Which is, again, really creepy and uncomfortable. Well, yeah, he's um, he's in prison because he's he's he got put in a nut house because of some bullshit. All he did was yeah. um, have sex yeah. with a minor. With an underage, like the, yeah, with yeah. a minor. That's that's the kind of um, and they, I I feel like I feel like the 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 DA um, kind of officers who come around kind of pretty much have the same attitude. I know their characters in this terror in this movie, but like like they they like Jake and they're like, yeah, we know Jake, we know. Yeah, but Andrew, she she didn't look um, fourteen. Um, Andrew, all cops are bastards. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> this um, is true. Can can we? Can we talk about how um, organized criminals are bastards? Um, also true. Yeah. 
So, cause, because um, all men are bastards. If you really want to kind of break it down to yeah. the significant uh, and, part, and let's yeah. let's let's talk about boxing as well, because um, I said that this is a very topical movie. Um, in the movie, um, boxing is controlled by organized crime. Um, in 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 the real world, um, of course, boxing is controlled by organized crime. Um, yeah. So been. yeah. Then we 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 have a um, an upcoming fight where where it's been kind of um, what was once kind of a um, uh, maybe not a closely guarded secret, but perhaps not as public as um, everyone has suddenly realized that um, that Christy Kinahan is um, is involved a member in of the Kinahan crime gang. Yeah, yeah. For any of our international um, listeners, um, we're like there's not there, there's not an awful lot we can say about uh, about uh, Christy Kinahan. Let's just say that he's a a, a drug dealer. Um, he's is um, and he's been convicted of such and of heroin smuggling. He is the person behind the Tyson Fury and um anthony joshua been, fight. Uh, severed, severed from it now at this yes stage. saudi arabia yeah he, he uh, i'd also point he out has for I, pr I, reasons case the kinahans are so, listening i uh, i don't mind them at all they're grand people <laughs> <laughs> i want to disassociate this is okay myself if any of the kinahans are listening if any of the kinahans are listening i always prefer the hutches um and oh, she, i guess we're cutting this bit no no, no. Have I said anything that's the, the uh, that's that's not true? Um, I would really rather that we didn't have Team Hutches and Team Kinahan on this podcast. <laughs> I'm not um, Team Hutch just... either, by the way. I'm just kidding. But the the the, the it's it's this the and it's something that we've spoke about when when we talked about Catch Me If You Can. This idea that criminals are some other kind of people who don't who aren't um, kind of everywhere at all times behind everything. The, 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 the idea that crime doesn't permeate um, throughout society. Well, you know, criminals are people too, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 motivations. The, yeah, and, and like, exactly. But the, the, the idea, for example, like, like we all commit crimes, every one of us. We're, 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 we're all doing something that's against the law. Um, like especially in the future, when nerdy fi- nerdy film podcasts are 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 are, are outlawed. But like, like like most people of our generation, pirate movies, right? So piracy um is, is, has has been found um to uh, profit criminal gangs, including terrorist organizations on our own island on both yeah, the sides. The studios say that, though, in fairness. No, the, 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 these um, the, these these things have, have 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 been studied and revealed. Now you have to question the source on these sorts of things. Well, that's the point. But they're, like the Rand Corporation have um, have have studied this in detail. That they did the um, like like take Ireland as an example. Yeah, UVF, UDA, um, and the Provisional IRA and the Real IRA have all been involved in piracy in Ireland. On the island of Ireland, and have also been responsible for the deaths of almost a thousand civilians, right? Like, so did they? But the the sorry if this seems like a bit of a rant, 
But it's the, 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 this is kind of what the movie got me thinking about. The, 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 the whole idea that there, there are just these criminals in, um, in the background of this movie that, that everybody, every, all of the characters in the movie, except for Jake, seem to just accept that like, they, they play an important part. And if it weren't for them, we wouldn't be able to, to watch uh, movies for, um, for free with, with, uh, with ads because the, the alternative would be surveillance capitalism, which is more evil than, I, I guess, um, terrorism and uh, drug smuggling. Um, in the context of Raging Bull, it's worth noting that a lot of this is drawn from Scorsese's own uh, childhood and own experiences. He'd talk about how when he was growing up in Little Italy, for example, you would have cases where the cops would tell parents to bring their children in between four and five because there was going to be a killing on the street. Because these gangsters operated with such relative impunity within the kind of neighborhood that they operated in. And so there's a real sense of kind of that being there. It's worth noting as well, Scorsese's talked about after the frustration of New York, New York, Raging Bull trying to be an attempt to get back to his roots in terms of portraying that sense of, again, you talked about how this is a movie about like literally about his community and, th- and places like that as well. Yeah. But even say the casting of his father uh, has a small role in the film as Charlie, for example. And like afterwards, he starts casting his mother, Catherine, who appears regularly throughout his films, for example, his next film, King of Comedy, but also notably in Goodfellas, which I'm sure we'll talk about when we get there as well. But I think that, yeah, I, I think what I find interesting about the organized crime aspect here is the sense that it's not central and the sense that it pervades absolutely everything. And yeah. the kind of sense that I think what Grace was saying at the start of the podcast about how the violence that Jake does is just physical, uh, but there's a sense in which the entire organizing principle of this community and arguably the community in which we live ourselves is violence itself. It's just more structured, more ordered, and kind of put in a fancy suit and sitting in the corner of a bar ordering gin and tonics to make you feel better about yourself. Jeez, I'd love a gin and tonic. How do you say that? <laughs> I would murder a gin and tonic, actually. I've just finished I've just finished a glass of wine. I know. I finished my wine like half an hour ago. Right. But would you murder for a gin and tonic is the question. I, I, it depends, that it depends on who the murderer <laughs> e is. Yeah. And I mean, with, with, who... Who among us wouldn't murder someone? Sorry, wouldn't murder a gin and tonic. Darren, you would not murder a gin and tonic, would you? No, I would not murder a gin and tonic, I'm afraid. Um, if, I, I just... if, 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 I, if I, like, bullied you for, like, months and months and months to try a gin and tonic, would you, would you do it? Probably. I did have a small sifter of uh, whiskey. whiskey. Was it whiskey? On, it did. On yeah. yeah. Yes. We should have made that a tradition where we would drink on every Scorsese podcast. <laughs> uh, well, well, aren't you drinking the podcast? Yeah. I mean, I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but in terms of Raging Bull as well, do you want to talk a little bit about the technique? Because it, it's a very it's an important film in terms of Scorsese's evolution, in large part because it marks the first true collaboration with Thelma Shoemaker, um, who would go on to become she won an Oscar for editing on this, and deservedly so. The editing is fantastic. Would go on to become a feature of Scorsese's films throughout the rest of his career. She'd worked on an early cut of Who's Knocking at My Door and helped whip that into shape. She'd also worked with him, I think, on Woodstock, the documentary looking at the concert, the famous concert Woodstock from 1969. Uh, but it is kind of interesting that this is a movie that kind of brings the two of them together and it kind of to a certain extent you know as much as this is a movie that says goodbye to United Artists and the way that things were in the 70s kind of paves the way forward for Scorsese um, in terms of technique in terms of craft she she wasn't in the the editing guild I think it was in the 70s before she wasn't doing his films Uh, it was only on this one that, that that happened 
Yeah. And therefore, and then became kind of like one of his most trusted associates. And again, you mentioned the commentary for this, which was recorded for Criterion back in 1990, both yeah. of them on together, which is remarkable. Again, in the context of 1990, and we talk about auteur theory and things like that, the sense in which recognizing the contribution of these kind of below the line players, the importance of, of uh, Schumacher in terms of kind of making um, a kind of a Scorsese yeah. film, a Scorsese film. It should be worth pointing out as well that even she couldn't save the snowman. Uh <laughs> She was drafted in, wasn't she? Was she was drafted in to try and save but he, the snowman. But he gave her all the clues. He did. He did. To, to be fair, aren't the rumours on the snowman, and I'll find something to put in the show notes about this, aren't the rumours basically that they didn't film the last couple of pages of the script because they it ran out of budget? I don't think it would have helped, but yes. That's at which point, like, there's no, there's no editor that will save you no. if you haven't shot the ending of the yeah, script. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, no matter how creative they cut around Val Kilmer um, reading sort of uh, dialogue. But yeah, so it, it is kind of interesting in that respect as well. And again, we mentioned Fred Warner. The production on this is absolutely fantastic. It's it's very, well, bold, very striking. Foley artist. I think we mentioned already a little bit. Warner. Um, um, yeah, but he, he he is getting paid. Frank Warner, yeah. Or if he's not, uh, Frank, he should be. Like, like, like who would, who, 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 whoever kind of like, like, um, it's not, it's not that realistic. Like not like it's very stylized, obviously, but it's just very kind of. Um, I suppose I suppose boxing movies do that. Um, like Rocky sounds like nothing you've ever heard before. Like when they're when they're boxing each other, but it, it's somehow kind of like more effective than making it sound like they're actually boxing. Um, yeah. And this movie kind of, kind of, um, obviously does does something a little bit, um, a little bit similar. But I, th- I think even even more sort of um, uh, stylized and and um, and interesting in terms of the 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 use of sound in it. Um, I think the really interesting thing as well. The I was, I was listening to the commentary and they record three different speeds for the flashbulb pops, and so. And then used whichever speeds kind of fit better for whichever particular fight to the sound that cracked that flash. It's all shot at different kind of frames per second, and I think it's really it's, it's really remarkable to look at with that in advance with that knowledge. I love it. I love as well the um, all the boxing commentary is great. Yeah. And a lot um, of the boxing commentary is real. A lot of it's actually taken from the fights in question. No man can take that punishment, which is, you know, not only a thematic statement about what the film is actually saying about what's happening in the ring, but was actually recorded from the fight on the night in question, which I find kind of interesting as well. Very quickly, just on Frank Warner, you mentioned the kind of Foley artist and sound effects editor. He'd actually destroy all of his recordings after he'd worked on them because he didn't want to create a library, which I find fascinating. That, that's my kind of uh, arsehole, I have to say, that would actually kind of protect your... <laughs> protect your own little uh, empire and protect everybody else. I really like that. I res- no, not respect even that. protect his own empire. Apparently the reason he did it was so he wouldn't be tempted to use it again. So <laughs> he'd amazing. never repeat himself, which I kind of adore, which is kind of amazing. Um, yeah, in terms I of like the, the way the film's shot as well, we I'd mentioned... I'd he'd be pissed though doesn't... if he was asked to do another boxing movie. <laughs> and then he realised like, God damn it, I could have used all of that stuff again. Um, um, well, actually in terms... In terms of boxing movies, it's notable that one of the reasons that this movie got greenlit, um, despite the failure of New York, New York, was largely because uh, United Artists were coming off the success of Rocky. Yeah. And Erwin Winkler, um, who was the producer, basically said, hey, 
um, do you if do you want Rocky too? And it's like, yes, we want Rocky too. And it's like, okay, but you're gonna also let Martin Scorsese make his boxing movie. Uh, which it's I like one of those monkey on. paw kind of um, <laughs> wishes that, <laughs> that you make. There's made. a lot of room in the world for Rocky and Rachel Bolt. Both films. <laughs> yeah, but like, like no, no, like I love both movies, but <laughs> you know, the studio who wanted Rocky, or probably not the same studio who no, wanted this. No. Who wanted Raging Bull. Um <laughs> I I mean, that well, actually, just worth mentioning because I didn't get to mention it earlier. New York, New York is excellent. Interesting. So I watched go. it for the first time last night. I find it fascinating. Right. Is, is the way that I would describe <laughs> okay. it. Um, I think it's great. No, it, it's have, absolutely beautiful to look at. It's, have you seen it, Grace? Seen which? Uh, New York, New York. I don't think she has. Nope. Uh, if I remember from the conversation. It's, on Andrew, the list. it's like La La Land if Martin's if they were Martin Scorsese characters is probably the best way to describe it. I need good actors. If... <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> but yes, imagine imagine La La Land with Martin Scorsese characters, and you have pretty much New York, New York. Imagine La La Land with Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, um, and then you have a version of La La Land with good actors. Um, <laughs> they they. Um, so did they, yeah. I mean, I'd be interested to, I'd be interested to see that. Um, I am sticking by La La Land. I like the more I think about it, the more I realize I probably hate it. But I can't. <laughs> I can't now. You've invested so much. I've invested too much in it. So, yeah. yeah. Everyone else like is that. wrong. <laughs> I I still like La La Land. Uh, I'm going to go out on the line and say that apparently the con- apparently the controversial opinion on the Raging Bull podcast is going to be that Darren likes La La Land. Uh, but very very briefly in terms of kind of the film in terms of Raging Bull, what I and what I find interesting in terms of and it, it's kind of interesting to bring the discussion full circle because we mentioned it at the start of the podcast and so I think maybe we're reaching the end. And it's good to bring it up again. But this idea of how we feel about Jake LaMotta. Um, and how we're supposed to feel about Jake LaMotta and this idea of whether he's irredeemable, whether he's a monster, whether he's a character that we empathize with or feel sympathy for. Because yeah, one of the things that I, I, think. I do find interesting about the film is that it Raging Bull feels very much like an edge case for that kind of, again, that Roger Ebert empathy machine idea. The idea that cinema basically invites you as an audience member to feel some sense of sympathy or compassion for the people is, you're watching. This is 250 bingo, out. by the way. So, sorry, for, for for people who had Roger Ebert says movies are an empathy machine. You, you, <laughs> you, just you, now, quid. you, you now have a full <laughs> line. <laughs> okay, but I, I think really no, I think that's an interesting point. I think it is. It a couple is. of things on them, on Lamotta. There, there, I think it's an article came out a few years ago to say that he, he likely murdered somebody and uh, was never charged as well. Um, that's not proven, but that's that's kind of digging deeper. That he was a worse person completely. Oh, yeah. Some, somebody who was charged and who was convicted. <laughs> Daniel, the Dapper Don, Kenneth, as I said yes, earlier. indeed. But um, I think the Scorsese Sorry. talked about it because the Scorsese talked about Lamotta as uh, it's it's not a biography. It's it's Scorsese and De Niro's and Schrader's and Maddox Martin's version of that kind of character. Yeah, and exploring that version of that kind of character. And I think in redemption terms, I I don't really know. All I know is I find the end very very moving, um, in the sense that. He, when he kind of 
very awkwardly reconciled with his brother um after many many years there's there's something really sad they're they're both kind of fragile and older and not necessarily much wiser but certainly with less anger which does almost give you a certain sense of almost exhaustion that you know you can get past things because it's easier and yeah. there, I, I think there's something there's even a modicum of kind of um fragile learning in there and i i, I find yeah. that found a move and i think it i think it works really really well within the film i don't think it sells out anything that's gone before i think they're like yeah. i think he's an appalling person mm-hmm. and i think the film is very clear yeah. on that uh it doesn't in any way shape or form condone what he does he's an appalling man but he yeah. he does get a sense a somewhat sense of peace at the end and you know is that temporary is that real that's an interpretation you can look at yeah no, because I think that it, it very much is. And again, you end with that quote from the Bible and the idea, you know, again, it's it's the story of the Pharisees and the story of the blind man and the idea that, you know, this person is not deserving of your sympathy or your empathy or whatever. And that the moral being actually they're a human being and therefore they are deserving of it. You know, like that moment where Jake says, I'm not an animal, I'm not an animal is him asserting his humanity arguably to the audience, asking us to look on him as a person rather than to see him as this kind of grotesque kind of circus sideshow almost that he'd become. Um, you know, this idea well, try, that... Try telling Sorry. Pretty Boy Janeiro that he's, he's not an animal. <laughs> well, he ain't pretty no more, has he? <laughs> no, he ain't pretty no more. It don't matter what Pretty Boy thinks anymore. He was so pretty, wasn't he? He was so pretty. Oh, well. Let's raise a glass uh, for Pretty Boy Janeiro. <laughs> yeah. They're going to they're gonna have to re-embrain I'm gonna all, raise, that kind of like raise all the advertising glass. that they had. I'm going to raise a glass of Tom Young Goom soup um, um, because I seem to have run out of wine. Um. <laughs> a heartbreaking moment in any man's life. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh-huh. This is the lowest point. This is the moment where Andrew's in the jail cell punching the wall. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I'm minutes away from a gin and tonic. If I could just say something on the redemption arc, I think the, the lack of a redemption arc is one of the things that I like about this movie. Because if there's one thing that I really, I, I really hate in like dude movies or movies about in, in with capital letters, great men, it's this idea that like, you know, they're human beings, so you're supposed to forgive them all of the things that they've done in their lives. It's like, eh, no, no. You don't forgive them, and you're not supposed to empathize with them. You're not supposed to and see somebody who beats the <laughs> out of everyone around him as a human being, or as someone who's worthy of empathy or respect. You're supposed to look on them and pity them, and not tolerate that kind of crap where you see it in society. Because I think, and this is where I think the film gets it right is that like there's a certain sense of aimlessness to it like the fact that all of this aggro he goes through ultimately amounts to nothing and that's what it should you shouldn't be rewarded for this kind of behavior and like i I think that that's one of the things that makes it a bit different for me and it's it's also kind of it i don't know about the the idea of you know um this being a movie about kind of you know justice being served or about you know, people receiving the kind of punishments that they that they've earned. Because I, I think running through it, there's like there's the there's the whole sense early on that it doesn't matter kind of it doesn't matter what he does because the judges are still going to um, like uh, uh, like it's in the it's hands against, of the judges. He, he, he won't get he they, won't get the fight. He won't get the fight because yeah. he won't play ball because he won't no. go along because he Cause, he won't follow the rules. He doesn't obey the rules. He doesn't understand exactly. the system. He struggles to understand how it works. 
But it, it's because yeah. the judge's mother's taken up the ass. That's that's uh, that's, 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 that's the reason. That's what yeah, that's, that's what Joey reckons. Um, yes, and Joey is our man with an understanding of how this works. Yeah, think, he's the guy, by by the way, that you were all citing earlier on as, like, <laughs> steady Joey. <laughs> Again, we did emphasize the word relatively speaking. Um, rel- everybody in this movie is awful. Some people are, like, slightly less awful or slightly better at disguising Who's their Who's the best person perhaps. in this movie? Probably the disappearing first wife. Um, to use the trope that Richard Brody has kind of pointed to, this is ground zero of in the Scorsese canon. Right. Yeah. See also as a Christine Maloney in Christine Maloney in uh, Wolf of Wall Street as well, yeah. another great Scorsese vanishing first wife. Um, but yeah, it is it is kind of uh, so probably her I think by default. Well, if possibly? there was just one, if there was just one wife, like how would you make it? In fairness, though, <laughs> she did <laughs> overcook the state. That was annoying. Like, like it wasn't, it wasn't worthy of his reaction, certainly. <laughs> but um, no, the, that 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 steak, uh, that's that steak had been done. Um, and you know what? If I were her, I'd, I'd, I'd I might, I might uh, burn it as well. Um, and 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 by the way, he had no excuse to 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 knock over the uh, table, because as food we know, waste. food waste. Yes. I was worried that there was going to be another food waste scene in it when when she or when she felt like a slice of cake, but ended up like ordering a whole meal. Um, like, well, I mean, um, there's also a steak being used as a kind of a suture practice there as well. To be fair, does that yeah. count as food waste, or is the food being put to good use? I think so. Did they, they? He said um, um, when when Joey was saying, uh, personally, I don't give a fuck what she eats. Um, I was I was thinking it might be like like I, I I thought he might he he might put a bit at the end when he says like so long as she finishes it, um but it but it but they it, were more it innocent times Andrew yeah they yeah. were back in but I I do think actually there is kind of to get back to the idea of that question of him not succeeding or him not getting what he wants I think the film's central point perhaps is that. A large part of it is him learning to make peace with himself, being comfortable with who he is. That sense of him looking in the mirror and seeing himself and not feeling revulsion and disappointment and kind of acting out and not wanting to fight Joey Lewis because he can't not, because he won't. Do you not no. think he Joe Lewis, feels... not Joey Lewis. Joe. Sorry, Joey is his brother, yes. Yeah, Joe... <laughs> do you not think he looks at himself and feels revulsion when he's playing to oh, these dive bars with oh. Emma 48? Um... Oh, he feels like, revulsion about himself throughout. Again, you have this recurring motif of all the mirror imagery that happens throughout. The sense of him looking at himself and feeling crushing disappointment and inadequacy. And there's, I think that you know, that if you want to be kind or compassionate towards the end, you can say that maybe. And again, this is the thing where the movie is deliberately ambiguous, as Jay pointed out. The mode of you know inverted commas reconciliation, that awkward tenderness slash discomfort with Joey when they meet and they hug, and Joey's you know quite clearly I, uncomfortable being there. Uh, I love that, that, by the way. I feel like if I were to hug my brother like that, he'd have the same reaction. Um, but that's a working class thing in a lot in a lot of ways, though. That kind of. Um the male kind of emotional kind of connection will only happen when alcohol is being taken or so right. this kind of thing is really, really awkward and you know it's not natural to them. Yeah. 
but you have that kind of bit at the end where he said, you know, even that little bit that he's doing where he where the guy yells at him on stage and instead of hopping down, he just kind of shrugs it off. He doesn't yeah. jump off the stage and attack your man. He kind of rolls it off and kind of turns it into a joke and kind of takes it in his, you know, not in his stride, as it were, but relatively compared to where he used to be, takes it in a much better way than he used to be. And even the fact that, you know, you have that kind of sequence where he's saying, you know, although I can fight, I'd much rather recite. Yeah. And that sort of stuff, you know, the idea that he's, you know, if you want to be charitable towards him and whether you should or not is up for debate. Um, and I think that, you know, Scorsese and De Niro have talked about one of the things with Raging Bull is the question, that question of empathy, that question of can you, you know, that is he a cockroach and he's not a cockroach, he's a human being. But, you know, is he somebody that you can feel connection with? Is he somebody who is maybe like Scorsese has talked about himself, you know, on cocaine, throwing glasses at people across a room, picking fights and being paranoid in the way that Lamada is here. And, you know, he, it's not too much to read. And I think he's positioned himself as a sense of working through that stuff himself, asking, does he deserve to be redeemed for what he did? Does he deserve, you know, a second chance? Can he look at himself in the mirror and not feel revulsion? I think that was that... kind of one of the things that he was working through on the film. That's the crisis, I think, that comes to any sincere Catholic, is this reaching a point and realizing, oh no, I'm going to go to hell. <laughs> kind of, um, you know, that, 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 like, like this idea of like, oh, I'm damned. I'm like, I, I'm not, uh, like, if all of this stuff that I've been taught to believe is true, then I'm just, I'm just going straight to hell. Um, and um and it's that sense of guilt um is is really really powerful and i i i suppose that's um that's what uh, that's what scorsese has um or at least kind of had, like like because he can look at himself and say like um i wasn't um like like so much so much of 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 one's life when you're a catholic is taken up with being a Catholic, you know what I mean? Like, like all of the kind of, um, you know, uh, formation of it, it takes a long time. And then becoming um, an adult, as, as Scorsese had, and realizing that he was a piece of shit, like, um, and that that wasn't kind of, that, that wasn't what he was meant to be, you know, that, that, and, and that there's a place for people like him, and that it's not, um, it's not a good place because he's been taught that it's not. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think it's a, it's on, it should be on people in general to be better regardless of these things. But yeah. I think oh the, yeah. Yeah. Catholicism does play its part certainly here and certainly with Scorsese. No, absolutely. Oh, yeah. But I, I mean, we don't, we don't really have that much like that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not a um, really a, practicing catholic at all um but um there 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 is there is perhaps a a a a problem in that if 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 scorsese didn't have his catholicism he'd be a very different um filmmaker um because i'm not certain he would have yeah yeah i'm not i'm not i'm not certain what what he could have instead I don't know, like maybe Scientology. Um. Jesus. That's a very <laughs> different filmography, I think. Um, it is worth noting. Yeah. We'd have it, a better Battlefield Earth, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Martin, Martin Scorsese's Battlefield Earth would be amazing. <laughs> as long as I remember. 
we're going to get to watch that, that, aren't we? We are indeed going to get to watch that. Um, In terms of his Catholicism, it's worth noting that um, while Schrader, Paul Schrader, apparently worked on a version of the script, um, it was not the version that made it to screen. Although Schrader's script for Taxi Driver was shot almost line for line, Schrader said that the only way to get a script for Raging Bull would be to transcribe the movie as filmed. But apparently one of the big deviations, and I find this kind of interesting, between Schrader's original, Schrader's draft of the film and the version that was actually filmed, is that the jail sequence uh, originally involved um, the character Jake LaMatta masturbating. And that was apparently something that both De Niro and Scorsese vetoed and said, no, that is absolutely not going in the movie there. And kind of just interesting in the context of talking about it being a sexless movie. It's weird the way Catholics work, isn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> all that other stuff is fine. But you can't <laughs> masturbate. <laughs> It is worth noting that the crucifix over Jake's bed is actually the crucifix, I believe, from Scorsese's parents' house as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, which is... they, that would have been like an appropriate culmination of the movie if he had masturbated at the end. I like the Paul Schrader. I think might have been onto something. Um, <laughs> am I wrong? Or I don't think it a fit. I think it'd been too much. Yeah. I mean, the, the um, like the, 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 I think you can see it, but I think it's just too much. Yeah. yeah. Because what what happens? Like he doesn't go home with that woman at the end. Um, the uh, presumably he 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 comes back drunk and punches the wall for like half an hour. By the way, this movie reminded me that punching the wall is one of the ways that you can, like, you know, deal with your problems. I I I I had like forgotten about that. Um, so it, it's 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 good to have that as a reminder that um, that 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 that's um, that that's one way of coping with things. Just very quickly, actually, on that, um, and again, it's it's actually interesting again to circle back to the thing that Grace mentioned when we started, which is this idea of kind of toxic male culture and the way that we romanticize it. De Niro's uh, performance here, uh, which is, I would argue, both one of the great. Uh, cinematic performances one of the great leading performances deserving winner of best actor but also perhaps one of the worst kind of uh, examples of inverted commas method acting not actually the Stanislavski method acting but what a lot of people tend yeah. to take as being it yes. the kind of the oh. sense in which I think is John, John Milani made the observation nobody ever method acts as a nice person but the idea yeah. that you know um, I think, I think, I th- I think it... yeah I, th- I think Paul F. Tompkins was talking about that about like like you know um, like of course of course you get Tom Hanks to play Mister Rogers because he doesn't have to go method he can just be himself but like you couldn't convince um, you know I don't um, no or um, Christian Bale or um, who's that guy who played the Joker lots of people did. <laughs> Jared Leto. Jared Leto. Yeah, Jared Leto is never gonna um, like jump at the opportunity to play a really like astonishingly nice person in a movie um, because then he has to be a nice person they for to like, figure out what uh, that means. four months. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's just too much work. It's much. It's it's much more like kind of gratifying for 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 these people to be like, can I? Um, it's very important to me that I'm method, so I'm going to have to hit this woman. Um, um, I feel like because because I, I was I was I was I was watching part of this movie with Petrina, 
um, and she was saying kind of, um, oh God, he, he actually hit her there. I, like Darren, you probably know. Um, I like, don't know. I, I don't actually know if there's any evidence or any suggestion that I he suspect, did actually I hit suspect her. not. Yes, I don't think that there is, I wouldn't to be absolutely so. clear. What, so what, what, what do you mean by going very, very method then? I was okay. So this is the thing where all the stories around De Niro are so well known that if there had been a situation with Kathy Moriarty, I imagine it would have been well talked about. The situation with De Niro going full method is the bit where obviously he went on a food food tour of Europe, uh, where he put on uh, forty pounds basically for the role instead of like wearing a fat suit, wearing makeup. I think it was Michael Powell who was Martin Scorsese's mentor at this point pointed out that was absolutely ridiculous that they halted production and paid everybody while he went to Italy to eat lots of pasta and get really fat. But even more to the point, things like his kind of physicality, he got into fights. Um, he fought three boxing matches um, under somebody else's name, under a fake name. He won two of them. But he also sparred with Lamada himself. He gave Lamada several black eyes uh, and chipped one of his teeth. When you're watching the sequence in the gym where he's training with Joey while the wise guys are watching, if you listen very carefully to the sound mix, you can hear uh, Joe Pesci go, ah! At one point during the sparring, apparently De Niro actually broke his rib uh, while filming that. I can believe that because they, they, they like this is um, it, it goes back to that thing about kind of like the, the, like this is a movie about Joey as well, it's about him being a punching bag. Um, we should have a spin off called for... Joey. <laughs> <laughs> Where he goes to LA. <laughs> yeah. And maybe every once in a while we get Jake to guest star on it. But not not a really popular one. We'll probably this end is... up then getting Tommy. How... Um So let's let's meet again soon and talk about this spin-off. Um, um I there already right. there's lots of there's lots of really great buzz about it. <laughs> All right, so I think that about wraps it up. Unless there's anything else you want to talk about with Reggie Bull, anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything? That we uh, no, I, 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 the only thing I'll say is that there's 27 minutes left match, the Chelsea and Man City match at the moment, and Liverpool are potentially champions. So, well, yeah, that's not Reggie I, Bull really it was, is exactly. <laughs> it was nil all. Oh, it's one all. Good evening. Yeah. So, like, right, I mean, so- I'm, I'm not saying I want to hurry this up to end. But I'm not not Perfect. saying that. <laughs> Let, let's let's hurry this up and end. So very, very, very quickly then, what we do is we ask guests to recommend something from their lives, something that you're enjoying at the moment. Okay. So something that you think will bring our listeners pleasure. So as the only person who has not sworn yet in response to this, Grace, is there something you are enjoying at the moment that brings you pleasure that you would like to share with the listeners? I haven't sworn yet. That doesn't sound right. Um, the Awe subreddit. Which is mainly just pictures of uh, cute things and animals and and wholesome memes. I would recommend that. Cool. And I'm guessing, Jay, because you swore first and therefore I've had more time to think about it. Jay, what would you (laughs) Uh, recommend? Um, I just finished watching uh, Miss America, which is the show about second wave feminism in the 70s. Yeah, with Kate Blanchett, Rose Byrne, uh, Tracy Ullman uh, and various other actresses. And it's excellent. And that's well worth watching. Can you watch and it legally? Andrew... I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> or will you have to, and you know, or will you become part of that CD criminal underworld, helping Frank but... Vincent in his nice fancy suits? Yeah, yeah. Either way. All right then. And uh, Andrew, what would you recommend for listeners? Um, I would recommend um, ordering more food than you can eat. Um, and why is choice? because because you, you would can recommend have food waste. Yeah. Well, no. Like you can eat it the next day. Is what I'm saying. 
like if you think it's a bit too much, like order it anyway. That that way you can kind of pick away at different things and have a sort of a feast. Then you get seconds. And you get seconds exactly. Like like the thing you don't the thing you don't want to do is to order food and then like feel disappointed that there's not more of it. Um, never under order. Never under. No. Um, I'd like to plug the 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 article "Film Piracy and Its Connection to Organized Crime and Terrorism," um, and I'd like to plug uh, paying <laughs> paying money for 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 movies. Um, this cost me ten euros, and now I own it. Um, until until, until um, the company that sold it to you. It cost me zero euro. Thanks to somebody on this podcast who shall remain nameless. Darren. Martin. <laughs> All right, then. Um, in terms of recommendations from myself, uh, what I would recommend is I've been doing using this podcast as an excuse to fill in gaps in my Scorsese knowledge. So I watched for the first time last night, I watched New York, New York, but I also watched An American Boy, which is the uh, Stephen Prince documentary that Scorsese made about one of the actors who appeared in Taxi Driver. Uh, it's a fascinating documentary. It's an hour long. It's just Scorsese having a conversation with this guy and involves a, a whole series of anecdotes that are both funny and sad and tragic and moving and sweet. And I would wholeheartedly recommend that. I think it's very much worth your time. You can find it on the Criterion channel. Uh, you can also find it streaming online as well. All right, then. We'll be back next week when the wonderful Jen Gannon and Renuck McGregor will be joining myself, Jay, and Andrew for our 200th episode discussing Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. Take it easy. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much, guys. I'll let you get back to the match. Sorry about that, guys. Bye. Thanks That's so right. much, Grace. Thank anyway. you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank, I'll, let you, I'll let you enjoy it. Now we get the gin out to celebrate. Uh, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm certain there's some more wine somewhere. Um, and, um, All right, thanks, guys. Really, really appreciate that. Bye. Bye-bye.